This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Jan, good morning. We've got an author today who's not going to rewrite, he's not going to change the ending, and he's going to talk with you for the whole program. For the whole program. Because he's got a lot to say. Well, it... It's a book that resonates, if I can use that word. We can use a lot of musical imagery. It's called The Bell of the World. And I guess it has a certain appeal. A pun. There. Sorry. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Um, and oh the author is... I just told That's my that. death knell, I think. But anyway, the, the author is Gregory Day. So, Gregory, welcome to 3CR. Oh, thank you, David. <laughs> Sorry. My, no, that's okay. My poor punning... Uh, which doesn't do justice to the book. But such, such a bad joke that sometimes jokes can be so bad they become they good. They become good. <laughs> so we're all well, laughing in here, which is what it's all about. <laughs> we don't have a sense of humour. That's our problem. But in many ways, bad jokes and, and the sound and the resonance and all of that sort of thing, in fact, does play a part in this novel, which is what amazes me. Um so let's make a beginning. Mm. Now, the book is divided into three sections. I'm plotting and being very pedantic, which doesn't do justice to the all-encompassing nature of the world. And there's an interconnected resonance about it. But we get to view the life of Sarah Hutchinson. And in that first section, she's almost, well, coming alive? Is that Hmm. Uh, she's been isolated in a boarding school in England. She doesn't know yet hmm. who she is or even what hmm. she is. Yes, she is in a chrysalis state and she has had a kind of a messy family, wealthy um, settler family, and her mother and father, you wouldn't call them the greatest parental models in the world, she suffered a lot of fragmentation. In a sense, she's kind of had to grapple to bring herself up. Eventually, they've sent her to England, to the boarding school, where when she's in England, what she feels is incredibly claustrophobic in that small place. She feels internally something much more spacious, which is kind of an, if you like, an analogy for the Australia that she comes from. And she feels boxed in there. And eventually she comes home to Australia. Yeah. But even before she gets home to Australia, yeah. she has this experience in Europe. She meets up with yeah. Uncle Fernie, Fernshaw Hutchinson, yeah. Yeah. and starts to touch on mm. some of the other views or perspectives of the world. Yeah, because her Uncle Fernie, who's, who's her uncle but only about 10 years older than her, he's a very liberal-minded person very open-minded and Sarah's viewed as a difficult case within the family so the family kind of hook her up with Fernie because they think Fernie's the only one who can handle her and Fernie's in Rome in a kind of avant-garde enclave um, he's gay he's working with yeah hanging out with artists she goes there and she she can feel an opening in that kind of culture where the usual segmentations and categories aren't being followed so much so she you're right she gets an inkling in Rome that there is something a little bit more interconnected, interconnected than she's experienced so far. And one of the artists she meets up with is Rousseau. Rousseau, uh, yeah, yeah, Rousseau. yeah, yeah. Uh, and this is an interesting mm. uh, encounter because he's asking her to look at things in a different way, touching up a painting. What after mm. it is hung on the wall? 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a it's a time. This is we're talking 1909-1910, which is the the main body of the book is set in 1910, and then the last section set in 1959. This is a very experimental era in art practices, and this painter character, Rizzo, is someone who for whom you know the avant garde is is his kind of native land. So there is an an instance where he's in an exhibition of his own work. And he sees something he doesn't like about a picture and at the exhibition he's touching it up, which of course in those circles isn't as radical as it may appear in certain circles of comportment. But anyway, what it shows to Sarah is there are other other ways of living. Other ways of doing things. And you don't have to actually accept the limits that are there. No, that's exactly right. But if I can then raise the suggestion that this um, first section... Mm is almost like a birth. Mm. Um, The next day she dressed herself, this time with underwear, and the class began gathering her hair at the back. When it comes, the velocity of the spirit is as sheer as any bird taking the updrafts out over blue waves. And so it was. And she also smelt like a bird as she knotted the scarf at her throat and stepped out into the air once more. Standing there in the light, Sarah felt a buzzing touch at the outer limits of her skin, as if it was thawing from the inside. Yeah. So she's coming to life. Yeah, she in is. Some ways. She is. She, and she's in a state of metamorphosis, I would say, transforming from this potential to a realization, and it's coming back into that. She gets sent to Fernie's farm, Nangahook. And she gets sent out there because, once again, Fernie's come back from Europe and he's the person who can handle her. In fact, he is her champion. He encourages all that limitlessness and interconnection because that's how he lives too. Mm. And so, yes, he's, she's finding a correspondence finally in her life between this enormous capacity she has inside as a human beyond categories with the, the, the vast scale of the landscape she is now in and with Fernie's extremely open mind this brings us to section two Mm. and it's told in the first person so in some ways that notion of a birth and coming to life Mm. is fulfilled because now she's becoming aware uh, and developing an outlook for of her own yeah we hear her we start to hear her we don't hear the narrator describing her we start to hear her and her voice and her cadence is pretty wild (laughs) it's got to be said but these notions of Mm. hearing and voice go all the way through Mm. the book this notion of listening Listening. as well is very important listening is a lot to do with what the book's about tuning understanding the world we're in before we lay too much categorization upon it so we are in a state of as we know planetary environmental crisis So in a sense, I wanted to write a book which kind of made some kind of contribution to the tuning in we have to do, the listening out and the raising of literacy with the actual planet we're on, um, which is our only home, and without it, we're nothing. So Sarah's a vehicle for that in a sense. And this is a process that everybody has to go through in some ways for themselves. That's right. Because it's a very individual voice. Yes, no, that's exactly right. Now, speaking of voices, therefore, uh, there's a couple of images then in this section. We have Fernie's love of Furphy's novel, Such is Life. Yeah. And he's been reading it in 
Section 1 as well in Europe. Yeah. Is there a reason for that, that he reads it out? Um, well, it's a radical book, Such is Life, um, published in 1903. Um, it's the great kind of um, avant-garde, experimental novel that kind of no one reads these days. But, for instance, someone like David, for David Malouf, it's in his top ten books of all time. There's certain people really love it. It's an incredible book. It's proto-modernist. But the thing about it, it's set amongst bullockies in the Riverina in the 1880s and all the lots and lots of different voices and accents and so forth. It's a very sonic book and it's a very funny book. And Fernie likes to read this out at soirees in Rome amongst this pretty open-minded avant-garde to, to shock them and to demonstrate to them that the sound of the place where he comes from is very different, but that this... This book is his talisman as he travels around the world. But even when we are travelling, or I've found yeah. that when I'm travelling, yeah. you pick up on the cadence of your own yes, uh, background. Ref- and, and, and it reflects back to you, doesn't it? Yeah. And you hear it almost You hear as it afresh f- by yeah. contrast. Yeah. yeah. That's right. So, I remember the first time I ever went to Europe and I arrived in Paris and I remember walking down St. Michel and feeling like I'd grown up on a 5,000-acre sheep station, and I hadn't. But, you know, just the con- by contrast, you feel the space. Yeah. But you become more attuned to the yeah. language, your own language, if I can call Australian a different language, or the sound and the, the cadence sound. and how it rolls off the tongue. Yeah, the particularities of how the landscape has got into our bodies and hmm. comes out through the sound of us. But here's the other go. Uh, the book is now falling apart, such is life. So he takes life, it yeah. to a bookbinder. Yeah, yeah, he does. And what does he do? Well, the bookbinder is, um, yeah, he he does something quite unforeseen, um, which, you know, it's hard to talk about without spoiling the, the plot. But suffice to say, through happenstance, he develops an idea. He is... He's, Himself, the bookbinder, is a frustrated writer, I suppose, at a time um, when he originally came from England where most writers, apart from, say, Thomas Hardy, were of a certain class. So he's not of that class. He ends up being an artisan rather than an artist, a little bit frustrated. Anyway, Fernie drops off such is life for him. And at the same time, at this point, um, which is, as I say, 1910, the book, the big American epic Moby Dick by Herman Melville was a completely unknown book around the world. We now think of it as the great American novel, but it wasn't until after the First World War when it was championed and it came back into view. So an American sailor is in Geelong. He has a copy of Moby Dick because he comes from the same region that Melville does. He shows it to the bookbinder who reads it and finds there's an incredible correspondence between such is life and Moby Dick Moby Dick being of the ocean, such as life being of the land, and he conceives the plan to bind them together into one book, therefore uniting the land and the sea and and creating the book of the world. But also (laughs) then, the background of Melville and Furphy and the like, and their subject matter, Mm. ordinary people. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing about those two books is they were both published... Um, in reasonably small print runs and that weren't sold out in the author's lifetime. They're kind of forgotten classics. Well, Moby Dick isn't now, but such is life is. So they had a similar kind of um, trajectory in terms of their public reception as well. So there's a lot they've got, a lot they've got in common. Yeah, so the book uh, does connect things, you know. It looks for connections. It's connecting, in that case, 
the land and the ocean and America and Australia. And later on in the book, in the last section, it connects up Australia and America again. But it is a book about interconnections and natural networks. Well, if we can get onto this notion of natural networks in some ways, mm. we find Sarah mm. uh, retuning the piano, so to speak, and bringing nature in. What's going on there? Well, there is a concept um, which is generally ascribed to John Cage as being, it's a, it's a process called prepared piano, where you actually affix different objects to the s- internal strings of the piano to change the sound. So you can recompose the piano. And Cage made this uh, a very famous um, uh, method of, of composing music in the mid-20th century. But, of course, it's also a very simple thing to want to do if you're living in the landscape and you're playing an instrument and you're like Sarah where you're trying, well, you're just naturally connecting up the outside and the inside. The inside of you, the outside, the social world, but more particularly the natural landscape or the cultural landscape and this inherited colonial piano that has come. So the piano is great. We love the piano. But she's trying to write music about the place she's in. So she literally grabs objects from the landscape, little bits of shin and bone and all kinds of things, and fix them to the strings to change the nature of the instrument to bring the outside into the inside. But to listen to what nature Mm. or the sound of nature... So what we got, I played and listened, letting the sounds ring out. I listened, then played, and looked through the largest windows I'd ever seen in an Australian house. They were exciting days, the sounds so replete, and something in the music grew porous, or was yearning to be porous, as if through those windows the outside was wanting to come in. Yeah, well, that's exactly, I think, where we're at now as a species. We've got to let the outside in. We've got to understand we're not the centre of the story. We're not the centre of the story. We are just but one of a network. And nature has a sound of its own. Mm. Are we able to capture that? Or are we? Uh, is, it, is it our own hubris to think that we can? Yeah, because we're nature. We're part of it. We're not separate from it. That's part of the probably the thing that got us into this mess is deciding that we were somehow separate and above. So it has a sound of its own and we are we are connected to that sound. So, you know, there's a lot of great work happening now about that. But there were also people back in history and Sarah Hutchinson as a fictional character is one of these people who were doing it back when not many people were. Yeah. yeah. To to hear what nature was actually saying. And of course, Australia has its own particular sounds. Of course, of course. It's to do with, you know, what they might call which you might call psychogeography. I mean, the place that we are in is made of our consciousness, if I can put it like that. We it is an objective place, but it's also how we hear it and what we put onto it. And that's the case, you know, anywhere in the world. So Australia has a particularity to it. And what Sarah's doing is having fun as well. That's the other thing. There's a kind of, there's a humour to Fernie and Sarah and their approach to things, which there was, which was very strong in the avant-garde at that time. Well, it's it's very uh, chaotic, abstract. One could say peculiar. Yeah. But it then comes together in section three. And um, this interconnectedness actually uh, becomes very real. We find in section three, Uncle Fernie's passed away. Mm. And so Sarah's now realising 
herself and finding um, a voice of her own in many ways and is reaching out across the world. Uh, there's a magazine that she contributes to. Uncle Fernie had the subscription. American magazine. American magazine. Nature magazine, yeah. And she finds a correspondence mm. with people around the world. Yeah. But the image you've got here is a fungi. Yeah. So she, um, Fernie was heavily into mushrooms and fungi, and she, earlier on in her life, was a little bit anti kind of science. Fernie has died and she's been through a grieving process. And in the process of that, she started to investigate his library and in the library are the magazines. And she starts to look at this Natural History Journal for America. And she starts to um, take an interest in fungi. And of course, the property where she is is full and teeming with fungi. And she sees one particular correspondent who's writing in, the Stony Point correspondent, starts to write to him. And they develop a connection which then becomes more than they could ever have imagined. But what does fungi do? Well, that's exactly what fungi does, because fungi under the ground is a network. Okay. You know, the wood wide web, as they call it. It's the natural internet. And it's the web upon which so much of what we live in relies on. So it's a metaphor there, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, the interconnectedness that has been a theme in the book from the start starts to be realised in this, in this um, exploration of her correspondence with this American man who ends up being a composer about fungi. Now, this is based on John Cage, the famous avant-garde composer. When he was in the 1950s making a big name for himself, such was the nature of his music that he didn't make much money for it. At that time, he was making money by collecting mushrooms and selling them to New York City restaurants as a way to sub survive. He wrote three or four books on mushrooms. He was a mad mycologist, as well as being a composer. And this is what's, this is the zone that Sarah, con Sarah connects to. A lot, not many people know that about John Cage, but it was a big part of his life. No, well, I didn't know yeah. that. I do know about four minutes and 33 seconds. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Would you care to? Well, actually, let's lead into that. Yeah. Because basically, Sarah is invited to a concert in Melbourne. Yeah, the town hall. In the town hall. She's got to come in from the country, from... Mm. Uh, Nangahook, yeah. Nangahook, close by the ocean, and come to this concert. But it's a concert of contemporary music. It is. And now we start to... 1959 we're at, at this point. Yeah. So now we come across these composers, mm. uh, all of whom have been doing... Uh, or are connected to Sarah in the way they've been approaching music and sound and listening. Henry Cowell That's right. was an interesting character. He was. He was actually attaching things yes, to the piano. And playing whole chords with his art with his forearm. He was using he was using the piano in ways that it hadn't been used before. As was John Cage. And so what Sarah had been doing in isolation, if you like, on her own in the back blocks, was also at, at the same time, or after her even, becoming this main thread in American contemporary music. Hmm. And basically, Henry Cowell and Percy Granger were contemporaries. Hmm. Yep. And, and uh, Granger experimented with free music. Yes, that's right. 
So developing other ways, and yeah. I mean, I think he had a scale with uh, yeah. you know a couple of hundred notes. That's in it right, and, that's and, right, and the like. So it's a different way of looking at traditional composition. It is, and of course, then John Cage, yeah. uh, the contemporary uh, musician. Now, four minutes and thirty-three seconds. Would you care to outline what takes place in this composition? Well, this is a very significant piece of music in twentieth-century music, and. Um, a lot of people listening would probably know it already. It's sometimes called the Silent Sonata. So 1952 was the first performance of this piece. It's called 4 Minutes 33. It's a piece in three movements, and it's completely silent. So it's three movements of silence. Now, this came seven years after the atom bomb. Okay, This was a world, a very noisy world. John Cage composed this piece um, to basically say to us, the world is music. He once said famously, yeah, I quite like music, but for me it's a bit predictable. I prefer to open my window in my New York apartment and listen to the street. He liked organic sound. And he said, we are in, not, we are in a world not only of sound, but it is music if you start to listen to it like that. And so he presented this piece, 4 minutes 33, in three movements. It comes in, the pianist sits at the piano and doesn't play. The movement goes through. There's all kinds of performances of this on the internet, by the way. Big orchestral performances at the Barbican in London. Heavy metal bands playing it in their in their in their bedroom, and it's it's got these levels to it, David. It's it's very funny. It's like a joke, but it's also a silent meditation. It's a deeply spiritual thing, and it's also once again it's time for us to tune in, and so he leaves the gap for us to do that. But the reception in terms of how audiences perceived what was taking place in the yeah, day. that's right. Because we're so categorised in, in our thinking, in our framework, we don't go beyond. Yeah. And so these composers, not only pushing the limits, but asking us to change our framework of thinking. Yeah, and I think what's, what's happening there is this, we make this division between nature and culture. And we draw the line and we separate them off. And I think what was going on there is that they were trying to remove that division in, such, in, in, in a way and understand for us all that we're in a cultural landscape, you know. And so a piano is a structure. It's a structure. It's got a certain amount of keys. It's built into octaves. And there's space between keys. There's sound between the keys that we can't access through the Western grid. So as we know, 20th century and going on now, flowering now blossoming now is all manner of art and music which is looking at the spaces in between the things we were blind to or deaf to that now we kind of are reacquainting ourselves with yeah and for sarah this is a culmination so section one virtually a birth section two coming alive and starting to interact but then Mm. section three finding that connection that global connection absolutely and understanding it and, and understanding that um, it's always... The, the last section of the book is called the, A Natural History of Eternity. It's always been there. It will always be there. Someone like Sarah is tuning into something which other people find weird and confronting and all these things, and her and Fernie go through a lot of hell in the second section where the community can't handle their radical kind of experimentations. But essentially, it's just a process of learning how to be here. 
Yeah. I mean, you've got that example in Section 2 of the local that wants a bell. Yeah, that's right. But it's a confined framework of thinking of that bell, church bell and tolling when... Well, that's right, and he wants to um, civilise a savage land, as he says. Well, they don't want any... That's yeah. just ridiculous. You know, what are you doing? This this place is itself. You don't have to ring the Christian bell all over it. Yeah. You know, things like that going on all the time. Now, then, to give a, a very trite example so it's because it doesn't do justice to what the book does you're playing yeah. with sound as well yeah. in the writing of this novel and and a very sort of very simple example you book bubuk mm. and even the name of uncle fernie's farm nangahook mm. and so you you've got this echoing yeah, that takes right. place and that's just one example yeah well language is sound you know um, language is sound first. We write it down second, you know. So it's it's music, it's sound. And when you're a writer, and I'm a musician as well, um, you write with your ear as much as you do with your hand or your fingers. And, you know, we know in Australia, <coughs> now again, as we tune in to the incredible richness of Indigenous languages across the country, the diversity of them, the variety of them, the way they take us to the place, you know, in a way that English floats on the surface. This is all, all part of the same, same idea that Sarah's got. Have we the ability, are there enough writers out there mm. with a good ear to hear what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. Like there's so much great writing going on. So many people with, well, I think we've all got, we've all got, look, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats, one of the greatest, most sonorous poets, he was tone deaf. According to Western musical models, he was tone deaf. But there's all kinds of layers to the ear, and I think everyone's got it. Everyone's got the, the capacity to tune in. It's, it, there's no hierarchy to this. Yeah, well, you can tune in in your own way. Yeah, that's exactly and right. And there shouldn't be a confining limitation to what we hear, what we are transpose mm. because it's all an impression of the sound that is out there yeah but also the the book is for me you know it comes it's written in the way it is and its scope is the way it is because i feel an urgency that a lot of people do feel about what's going on and what's the, what the future holds i think it's really urgent for us to tune in and listen and to get back to ourselves as organic beings in this organic world. So Sarah is, a, is someone who goes through that process, as does Fernie. Well, I've had to confine this interview <laughs> to some very pedestrian uh, sort of fence posts uh, <laughs> to contain what goes on in the bell of the world. Mm. But there's so much in it for uh, the reader... Uh, so they need to pick up a copy to see how everything interconnects, all the way from the first section to the third, the Sarah's development over that time, the sounds, the images, the metaphors that interconnect right across the book. Mm -hmm. So the novel is called The Bell of the World. The author is Gregory Day, and it's a transit lounge release, Jan. Well, I have a question. Yes. It's in hardcover. Yes, now, beautifully I... done, beautifully made, um, and the artwork of the cover is is um, the work of my partner Sian Marlow, 
who's a book designer. We do we do a lot of um, more artist books, and Transit Lounge have worked with Sian in a very interconnected way to create this beautiful hardback with a lovely green ribbon. So it's I'm very very um, happy that the book as an object seems to me to be embodying what's inside it, which is rare. Well. Next question, yeah. such is life yeah. and Moby Dick. Yeah. Did they come out in hardback first? Yes. They did. They did, yeah. Well, in those days, hardback was the go. You know, that's these days people say, a lot of people don't like hardbacks. They think they're too heavy or, or whatever. But, um, and, yeah, they came, up about, they came out in hardback. Um, and when the artisan who melded them both together to make land and sea, yeah. was that a hardback? Yes, it was. He took the bindings of the original book that Fernie had dropped off, Such Is Life, and he, because he was a skilled bookbinder, he performed the operation of the greatest piece of craft work of, of his life to bind these two disparate books together. In It's a crazy way. Fernie goes back to the bookbinder, turns up to receive his fixed book, looks in the window, and he sees a book half as thick. And he's like, what is going on? What have you done to my book? And then, so there's... there's there's a lot of comic elements in this in this novel as well as all the rest. <laughs> I thought that was very interesting. Well, good. Thank I'm you glad very you much enjoyed it, Jack. I did. I did. Excellent. And um, the I was meant well the book that I will be talking about next week yeah. will be the gaps, the spaces in between oh, by kidding. Leanne Hall. No. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, that will lead, take us out till next week, then, Jan. I think so. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.